I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verses 153 through 160. Continuing our exposition, which we have been doing in the evenings, of Psalm 119, which is a psalm devoted to the extolling of the Lord, and especially the Lord as he has revealed himself in his law and in his most holy word. The believer's life is expressed in terms of its relationship to the Lord and love to the Lord, but a love for the Lord that is closely tied to and expressed in that love which he has for the word of the Lord. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so it is true of each and every one whom the Lord calls to himself that there is a precious bond between God and the believer that is formed in the connection to the very word of God given to us in his word in the scriptures. And so it is, that is true of all believers, that they love the Lord and they love his word. And that is what this psalm is about. As we come to the section that we're looking at this morning, we're going to see what the psalmist says in terms of the ministry that he pleads for, that God would minister to him in his affliction. And so uh, let us look together and hear the word of the Lord. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's look to the Lord once again in prayer. As you are the one who has given this word, O Lord our God, we ask that as you have given it originally to the psalmist, and we have had it read to us, that we might hear that which it has to speak to us in this time, We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book uh, by John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, there is a conversation that takes place between two characters, Christian and Pliable. Pliable wants to join Christian on his journey. And he comes up to Christian and he seeks information about what is in the book that Christian is reading and the kinds of things that God has promised in that book. And as they begin their discussion, Pliable says to Christian, Come, neighbor Christian, since there are none but the two of us here, tell me now further what things there are and how to be enjoyed whither we are going. And then Krishna acknowledges that uh, 
He has difficulty talking about them. He's still learning about them. But Pliable continues to press, Christian, what are these things that are revealed in this book? Christian says, well, there is an endless kingdom to be inhabited and everlasting life to be given us that we may inhabit that kingdom forever. Pliable says, well said, and what else? Christian answers, there are crowns of glory to be given us and garments that will make us shine like the sun in the firmament of the heavens. Pliable says, ah, this is very pleasant, what else? Christian says, there shall be no more crying nor sorrow, for he that is owner of the place will wipe all tears from their eyes. Pliable says, the hearing of this is enough to ravish one's heart. But are these things to be, what are the but are these things to be enjoyed? How shall we get to be sharers thereof? And Christian says, The Lord, the governor of the country, hath recorded that in this book the substance of which is, if we be truly willing to have it, he will bestow it upon us freely. Pliable says, Well, my good companion, glad I am to hear of these things. Come on, let us mend our pace. I saw in my dream, Bunyan says, that just as they had ended this walk, they drew nigh to a very miry slough that was in the midst of the plain, and they, being heedless, did both fall suddenly into a bog. The name of the slough was Despond. And here, therefore, they wallowed for a time, being grievously bedaubed with dirt. And the Christian, because of the burden that was on his back, began to sink in the mire Pliable says, Then said Pliable, Ah, neighbor Christian, where are you now? Christian, truly, said Christian, I do not know. Pliable, at that Pliable began to be offended and angrily said to his fellow, Is this the happiness that you have told me all this while about? If we have such ill speed at our first setting out, what may we expect between this and our journey's end? May I get out again with my life. You shall possess the brave country alone for me. And with that, he gave a desperate struggle or two and got out of the mire and on the side of the slough that was next to his own house. And so he went, and Christian saw him no more. In this story of the conversation between Pliable and Christian. We have an instance of a man who thought that the Christian life was to be a pleasant journey and that there was to be no difficulty on the way. The text that we have before us this morning is one that describes difficulty and affliction. And the point of this text is that every Christian who goes through this life will find that they are in times, they will have times of great trial and affliction. And when they are in those times, they should cry to God. When you are in times of trial and difficulty and pain, you should cry out to God. I want to look at this uh, 
section of Psalm 119 under three headings. The first is the condition of affliction. Secondly, the cry of the afflicted one. And thirdly, the argument or the reasons that he gives as to why God should hear his cry. So, first of all, the condition of the one who is afflicted. We notice that this section begins with these words, Look on my confliction, my affliction, and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. The Christian life is one in which we ought to expect that from time to time we will experience great difficulty and crosses and pain. What is affliction? The sources of affliction are many and various. We may lose someone to death suddenly that we love greatly. We are bereaved by death. Or we may be struck suddenly with an illness. Or an accident may happen that affects our life from that point on. We may receive a diagnosis of cancer or heart disease or some other thing that will affect us for the rest of our lives. There are social afflictions as well as physical afflictions. I think of the young people growing up in today's world. How difficult it is to find one's way. And if I could have one thing that I would like to say to young people who are listening this morning... That is, when you hear about afflictions, don't merely think of adults, but realize that you also, as one who is a disciple of Jesus, are called by God to recognize those difficult things that you go through in life as having a divine purpose for you. We may experience betrayal. We may experience cruel treatment at the hands of others. There is such a thing as social shame. We see this all over the internet and the social media, but it can happen in groups as well. We have painful anxiety. We sometimes say stupid things and we want to crawl in a hole and not ever be seen again. We have difficulty knowing how we should behave or what we should say to fit into a particular group that we are with. Oh, how difficult it is often. Oh, the inward pain that we sometimes feel. Though we ask questions as to why these things are happening to us, it so often is the case that there are no answers that are ready at hand. The psalmist expresses this in the previous section by in verse 143 with these words, trouble and anguish have found me out. The psalmist is in these verses, and not only in the verses that we read this morning, but in the prior sections. He is someone who has been afflicted greatly. He is in pain. He is in great difficulty. And so God's people should expect, and we should expect, that often in our lives we will experience these things. Anxiety, fearfulness, we are not exempt from trouble. As Job says, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. 
as Jacob said to Pharaoh when Pharaoh was talking to I would have loved to have been there for that conversation. Jacob before Pharaoh. Jacob says to him, Few and evil have the days of the years of my life been. Few and evil have the years of my life been. God never intended for the world in which we live to be a place of rest, but of exercise. Thomas Manton puts it this way, It is a middle place between heaven and hell, and it has something of either in it. As we take our journey from this world to the next, we should expect, like the psalmist, to experience difficulty and affliction. And if we do expect it, we will then be able to take up that cross, to be prepared for it when it comes, and then cry out to God for help, and to remember that it is true that Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What does it mean to take up a cross? But to embrace these sufferings that are placed in my life as given me by God in his sovereign purpose and adapted to my particular state and condition for his higher end and purpose in my life. There is some affliction that comes to us that is private and personal. All of us in our various lives know what that is. And there are other afflictions that come from persecution for the sake of Christ and his gospel. You stand firm for what you know about the Lord Jesus Christ and you are persecuted for that. And you are, you are ridiculed for your commitment to God and his word. Both kinds of affliction, personal and private, as well as persecution for the sake of Christ, are given to us often in this world. We need to know about this because we need to prepare for them. To think that we are going to go through our lives and to live without them is to think that a soldier could go to war and never experience difficulty or conflict, or that a sailor would go to sea thinking that he would never have anything but calm and fair sailing. As the soldier must prepare for war and hardship, so the sailor must prepare for rough seas, and so the Christian must prepare themselves for affliction and suffering. How do we do that? Well, we read the scriptures and we see how the psalmist responds when he is afflicted. We have God's word and we have examples of men who cry out to God in their affliction. And so we have that in the text before us this morning. Many Christians think that the Christian life to be a walk for recreation, not a journey that requires preparation. Last night, Eileen and I got all our suitcases out and started packing for the trip that we're going to make this afternoon down to visit Matt and Sue. We're not going for a walk at the park. We're going on a journey. 
And so that requires of us to make preparations. Life in this world is a journey. It is a time of preparation for the world to come. It is not your final home. It is not a place of rest. It is not to be expected that it will be calm and peaceful at all times. But God's design in our afflictions is to sanctify and to develop his holiness in us. That in the midst of our trials, that we would learn how to use God's word. And even the passage that we are looking at this morning, to see how it is that God uses hardship to enable us to endure. As Paul wrote to the Romans when he said, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing. The blessing of the gospel. We have forgiveness of our sins. We have peace with God. But he goes on to say, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of God. Again, what a wonderful blessing. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. (laughs) But then he says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And I would call upon you this morning, you, through your own life and the experiences that you have, you know your own pains, you know your own sorrows. But it is so important for us to recognize, not just to sort of take them in stride and think of it as just sort of a a fate that is laid upon us that we must grin and bear it, but rather to recognize that these things have been placed in our lives in God's sovereignty that we might know him more, that our suffering would produce something that it would produce endurance, that it would produce character and greater holiness of life. So God is calling you to recognize this, not just to dismiss it or try to get out of it as quickly as you can, as we all by, by nature wish to do, but to recognize this also as something that comes from God, that he has a good purpose for your afflictions. Secondly, I'd like for us to notice the way in which the psalmist deals with the affliction that God has placed upon his life. The affliction he's experienced makes him cry. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. By cry, I don't mean sob necessarily or shed tears necessarily, though that may be involved. But what I mean is this. It is to call. It is to plead. When you're in pain, what do you do? When you're in physical pain, what do you do? You've got a tooth that is abscessed. You've got something that you, you, you really need to do something about it. You call the dentist. And you hope that he'll be able to figure it out and help you. Or if you have a physical, physical problem, you call the doctor. And you ask his advice and what you should do to deal with it. When we are in trials and difficulties in life, what are we to do? We ought to bring our pain to God. 
We're to bring our pain to God and cry to him and plead with him and call upon him. In the case of this afflicted one in Psalm 119, he pleads and calls out with God. In verse 145, in the prior section, he says, With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord. James, in his epistle in the New Testament, says, Is anyone among you suffering? What do you do when you suffer? James says, pray. Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. And the psalmist says, with my whole heart I cry. Answer me, O Lord. Call upon the Lord. But in order to pray, we need to know that the painful things we experience in life are not signs of God's rejection of you. He is not casting you away, and your suffering, these things, is not a result of his rejection of you. They are, rather, his voice calling you, pulling you, grabbing you, making you notice him and call upon him. We, when we understand that our pains are God's way of getting our attention, seeking us, then we turn to him in prayer and we call upon him. And C.S. Lewis put it beautifully in a well-known quote. He says, pain insists upon being attended to. It does, doesn't it? It insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. But he shouts at us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain and difficulty, these things that we experience in life, are his way of using a megaphone to call out to you. So call upon him. Look upon your trouble as his getting your attention. Call upon God and ask him to look upon you in your trouble. As the psalmist does, look on my affliction and deliver me. Previously, he had prayed in verse 149, he said, hear my voice according to your steadfast love. Now he calls on God to look at him. Previously, he had said, hear me. Now he says, look at me. And there is a difference between hearing about something and seeing it, isn't there? Seeing something affects us in a very deep and emotional way, in a way in which sometimes the listening does not. We hear and we analyze what we are hearing. Often it is seeing something that moves us to action. It is sight that grabs us in our emotional life. Think of the way that radio gave way to television as a means of communication. Seeing images on a screen pulls us into the event that we're watching. And we get drawn into it. No matter how ludicrous and unbelievable it might be, we willingly get drawn into it because we have set our mind aside and our emotions have taken over. 
We're not sitting down and having an analytical discussion about what we're watching on television. We're just going with the plot. Visual paintings have the same effect also. They grab us. You can look at a painting, a beautiful painting by a, by a master, and it, it, it affects you deeply because something that you see there moves you in an emotional way. And so the psalmist asked God not only to hear him, but to look at him. Look at me. See my affliction. And looking, he believes, will move God to see and to respond in mercy and grace and to deliver him. It's almost as though you might see someone who is a beggar pleading for money with his mouth will stop and open his shirt and point to his wounds so that you will be able to look and see his great need. So the psalmist opens up his heart to God and says, Lord, look. Look and see what I am going through. Help me. Deliver me. He does want... He does, it is not merely that he, it's not that he doesn't think that God knows. God is omniscient. But he wants God to see and to know with tender compassion. He wants to experience the tenderness of the love of God that is revealed to him in the covenant. You remember that when Israel was in slavery, they cried out for help. And their cry for help came up to God, and God heard their groaning. In the book of Exodus we read, And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and he saw the people of Israel. He saw the people of Israel. And he says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry. Because of their taskmasters, I know their sufferings, and now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come up to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. And then he says to Moses at the burning bush, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God sees, and he sends. He sees his people in misery, and he sends Moses to deliver them. What a wonderful thing. We should also see that the psalmist pleads with God to be his redeemer and to plead his cause. The Hebrew word that is used here, plead my cause and redeem me, is the word for redeemer, is the kinsman redeemer. When a Hebrew was poor and unable to escape from their poverty or their situation, they would go to their kinsman and ask him to take up their case and act for them. And Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, that he might stand in their stead and bear their burden and fight their fight. And when we feel powerless before our foe, Spurgeon says, here is a prayer ready at hand. Plead my cause, redeem me. Come and act in my stead. Be the one who redeems me from this trouble. This is what Boaz did with Ruth. This is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He has come in, the, in his Son, and he's brought a, taken himself to himself our nature, that he might be our close relative. 
And then as our close relative, he takes up our case. He stands in our stead. He bears our burden. And he fights for us. And he gives his life for us. And he gives himself for us on the cross. What love moved the Son of God to act as a kinsman redeemer to redeem his people. And so the psalmist prays, Lord, deliver me. Be my advocate. Be my advocate. I am unable to deal with this that you have placed in my life. I am powerless before it. Help me. Redeem me. The Apostle John wrote, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. God is an advocate for his people. I urge you, not only call upon him to see you in your misery, but call upon him to be your advocate in Christ Jesus. He does so as our priest. He does so as our king. And he does so as our prophet. The psalmist feels himself so tied to God's gracious provision that he stands in need of God's life-giving power. He says, give me life according to your promise. He needs life. He needs God to quicken him. He needs more power, more grace, more love, more faith, more courage. Isn't it true that the Christian is always in that place? Lord, give me life. Give me grace. I don't have enough. I can't do it on my own. Help me in my weakness. Help me in my powerlessness. This is what the Apostle Paul faced when he prayed that God would remove the thorn in his flesh. And what did God say to him? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In our need, and this is the mystery of suffering. This is the great mystery of suffering. Because it tends to bring us low. It tends to make us feel deeply our weakness and our need. And that is exactly the place where the power of God reaches down and gives us supernatural strength. When I am weak, Paul says, then I am strong. So don't be afraid of these trials, for they reveal to you your need for God and realize that it is a time for God to act in you by his great power to give you life. And then the psalmist continues to give arguments why it is that God should respond to him. He pleads the greatness of God's mercy. He says in verse 156, uh, he says, uh, uh, Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Uh, the, the original is, uh, many are your mercies. Many are your mercies, Lord. You have been one who have revealed mercy again and again. Your mercies are new every day. He pleads the largeness and the greatness of the mercy of God and says, Lord, now be merciful to me. He reminds him of the fact that he is one who is his dear child and that he loves him and that he loves his word. For I love your word. 
I do not forget your law. He is walking in covenant with God. This is not a prayer that is styled and that is sort of an emergency prayer and when he's in trouble and he's calling out to God for, because he, 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 he's in, in trouble and he just needs God to help him. This is a man who is walking with God and yet he is suffering and he calls upon God. He calls upon him and praises his many mercies and says, now have mercy upon me. He reminds God of the fact that he hates his own sin and he hates the sin of those that are about him. Notice the language here when he says, I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commandments. There are faithless people all around you. How do you see them? How do they present themselves to your eyes? Do you see the glitz and the glamour and the and the lies of this world for what they really are, the psalmist is saying, I see through all of that, and I see what this is that is being presented to my eyes, and it is wicked, and I despise it, I loathe it. It is part of what it is to be a child of God. It is to be revolted by those things that God is revolted by. Even when sin is still, uh, when, 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 when wickedness can sometimes be funny, Wickedness can seem witty. Wickedness can seem attractive. It is still wickedness. And it is for us to recognize it and see it. And the psalmist sees it and he says, uh, what is sin is loathsome to me. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He does not stand in their way and he doesn't sit in their seat the seat of the scoffers. He doesn't laugh at their jokes. He doesn't allow himself to be entertained by their comedy. He does not delight in that which is abhorrent to God. I look at the faithless, he says, and I feel that same disgust and that revulsion that God himself feels. And it's an interesting study uh, to see how that word is used. But you remember that the shorter catechism speaks of our own sense of our own sin is that that sense, that true sight and sense of sin, to see sin for what it is as being ugly and as being awful and a violation of the holiness of God, to have a true sight and a sense of sin is what the psalmist is saying. He is God's child and he grieves first over his own sin and then over the sins of those that he sees about him. And then he says that it is, it is the fact that He argues that he has been loyal to God. He's been obedient to. He has loved God's word. He's lived in confidence in the promises. And so he says, Lord, hear my prayer. And he is confident that God's word is true. We come to the end of this section where he says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The truth of God stands in the face of the lies of mankind, in the wickedness of mankind. God's truth endures forever. C.H. Spurgeon, and I close with this, put it this way. Against the decisions of the Lord, no writ of error can be demanded. Neither will there ever be a repealing of any of the acts of his sovereignty. There is not one single mistake either in the word of God or in his providence. The Lord has nothing to regret or to retract. 
nothing to amend or reverse. All God's judgments, decrees, commands, and purposes are righteous. And as righteous things, they are lasting things. And every one of them will outlive the stars. Till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till it is all fulfilled. Every one of God's judgments endures forever, for there is a much sweeter one, Spurgeon says, which is of old, which was the song of the priests in the temple. And it is this, not only are God's judgments those which last forever, but Spurgeon says, this is a sweeter song that also lasts forever. His mercy endures forever. And so the psalmist opens his affliction to God and says, Lord, look upon me in my pain. Come and deliver me. My confidence and my trust is in the truth of your word. Is that the case for you? Do you know God in such a way that you can take these crosses that are laid across your shoulders and understand them to be part of this walk that you are in, this pilgrimage that you are in, where God is through them teaching you things. And one of the things he is teaching you is that in doing that, you're following Christ, and you're, as Christ did to, with his heavenly Father, you also are crying to God, saying, Lord, redeem me. Lord, help me. You know my pain. Come and set me free. We are invited to have that kind of a relationship with God and to do so in firm trust that God's promises are true and his mercies endure forever. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this example given to us by the psalmist, calling each one of us who are here today to a living faith and trust in your word. May it be that if there is someone here today who does not yet know in that way of repentance and faith the truth of these things and repented and placed his trust in you, we pray that you would work mightily, that he or she would look to you in faith and turn to you and know your mercy and grace to them in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, Lord, take this word and apply it to our hearts, we pray, in Jesus' name.